So with that, we're going to read this morning from Genesis 11, 1 through 9. God's word says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they're one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Verse 9, therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Father, We love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. We thank you that we can gather today around your word as we sing your word back to you and we learn from your word that is the Bible, our holy scriptures, Lord. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his reconciling work, God, that you came and and took on flesh and lived in our place perfectly. You died on the cross for our sins as a substitute for us, Lord, and that you have raised from the dead in victory over sin and death, God. And we pray through Jesus, and we call upon you, God, to help us this morning as we hear from your word. Lord, would you stir up our affection for you, God? Would you help us uh, to walk in the new and better way through your son, Jesus? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. In in June of 2007, something remarkable happened in the technology industry. Apple released the first generation of the revolutionary iPhone. The buzz, the buzz around the, the just new and exciting technology made this little device the center of affection for any tech-savvy millennial. The newest, latest, and greatest cell phone had arrived. The cutting-edge touchscreen Maps capability and iPod music integration led this little contraption as the new gadget that you must have. And that was in 2007. And I'm going to run through a timeline with you. A year later, the iPhone 3G was introduced on July, in July of 2008. And then the 3GS in June of 2009. And then the iPhone 4 in June of 2010. The 4S, October 2011. The 5 in September 2012. The 5S, September 2013. The 6 and 6 Plus in September 2015. The SE in March 2016. And then the 7 and 7S in September 2016. The iPhone 8 and 8 Plus in September 2017. Then the new iPhone X in November 2017. And then the XS and the XS Max in September 2018. Then the 11 Pro and the 11 Pro Max in September 2019 the 12 mini Pro and Pro Max in November of 2020, then the iPhone 13 mini Pro and Pro Max in September 2021, then the SE3 in March 2022, and then the 14 Pro and Pro Max in September 2022, and then the 14 Plus in October of 2022. And now, if you guys have been paying attention to the news, we have the highly anticipated new iPhone 15 to be released later in September 2023. Isn't everybody excited? Yes. 
This isn't a commercial for the iPhone. It's to get us around this idea this morning in our society, these cultural concepts that we have that new is better, right? The new thing is always better. I remember kind of in, in, in geekier days for myself when the iPhone came out, man, I wanted one of those phones with the touch screen and you could just put the little GPS map right on there. I could listen to my music. And then every year I wanted that new thing. Now I have to admit, now that I'm getting older, at least according to Nate, our discipleship director, I'm not as excited when the iPhone comes out because it's just something that I have to learn how to navigate all over again. Anybody with me on that, right? But in our culture, we are inundated with this message that new is better. And so this week, we've been looking at cultural slogans each and every week. This week, we're going to look at just kind of a cultural concept, a concept that has, is within our culture and within our life, that new is better. Again, our, our culture is inundated with this message, the, the new or the younger thing is better. Most movies even can make this subtle claim that, that youth know best. Many of the movies I know that I, I enjoyed watching growing up as a kid, like Home Alone, for, for instance, makes this claim, right? The, the young kid knows better than the, the older people in the movie. I can recall watching these types of childhood films with my dad, and my dad would always make this kind of sarcastic, snarky comment at the end of the movie, and he'd go, yep, once again, small children outsmart adults, right? New is better, young is better. You get, you get the picture. We have a tendency to view everything new with the mindset of this, that humanity is progressing toward a better way. Do you want further proof? I would invite you at the end of the year, if you can kind of bear through them, go to a high school graduation and you'll be inundated with this message once again, right? Every generation that graduates, they're the ones that are going to change the world, aren't they? And yet here we are still. So is this true? That's the question. And this morning we're looking at this. Really the heart of what we're looking at is the myth of progress. The myth of progress. And we, and we look at this question, is my hope in man-centered advancement or the eternal wisdom of God? Is my hope in man-centered advancement or the eternal wisdom of God? The, the age of science and, and enlightenment and curiosity have brought forth an outlook on life that favors this, a view of, of the continual progression of humanity. And this progression is driven by our, as, as it would claim, this viewpoint would claim, is driven by our innate desires and goodness advancing. But again, are we? Are we getting better? Okay, are we, here's a fake made up word, are we gooder than we used to be, right? If I said that in front of my mom, she'd probably wash my mouth out with soap. This is a relatively new train of thought, though. According to uh, uh, a doctor in history, John Dixon, he says this, the ancients were actually more skeptical of the new things because the old traditions, he says this, were stable. You knew what to expect. We can agree there's, there's advancements in Western civilization that are positive, right? We, we agree with those things, such as the, the abolition of chattel slavery in the, in the United States or advances in medicine and more accessible education, all great things to be better at. But overall, again, are we progressing or moving forward in a positive direction, or are we simply cycling through the same pattern of supposed progression and regression that has existed since the fall 
of humanity. We're reminded of this cycle in Genesis 11, which actually, if you were to read through uh, uh, Genesis, kind of from left to right, how we read books, right? Right before Genesis 11, there's a major catastrophe that has happened on the earth. Does anybody know what that catastrophe that it's occurred right before that? Someone shout it out. The flood, right? God has flooded the earth. His judgment has been uh, put forth, and he is a, he, except he saved one family, right? Noah and his family. And then right after this instance, we have uh, the Tower of Babel. And it says this in verses four and six. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for, this is important, let us make a name for ourselves. You see how humanity elevates themselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So right there, I want to pause a second. They know what just happened. They're admitting it. They're saying, hey, God might pour out his judgment one more time. We might be dispersed. And the Lord said, so what did they do? They start building this tower. And the Lord said, behold, they, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. What God is getting at there is that there is nothing that they're not gonna do that's gonna just continually uh, built, be built up and destroy themselves in a cycle over and over and over again. The Tower of Babel teaches us a number of lessons And a glaring one is the nature of humanity to, hear this, the nature of humanity to run counter to the instruction of God and to elevate our own renown, to elevate us as humans above the renown of God. Uh, Tony Renke summarizes these motives well in a book called God, Technology, and the Christian Life. He speaks also on the Tower of Babel, and he states this, quoting, says, all of humanity gathered together with religious intent. I want to pause Uh, his statement, to worship, right? And who are they worshiping? They're worshiping themselves. Going back into the quote, with what appeared to be the goal of opening a portal in the sky, storming heaven, dethroning God, and enthroning humanity in his place. This is man-centered progress in a nutshell. It's an endless cycle of elevating human will and desires and self-centeredness above the standards, desires, and will of God. And so it brings us to this question. What do we want when we do this? What do we want? What do we want? Number one, we want to be a law unto ourselves. We want to be a law unto ourselves. This is the heart of man-centered innovation and drive. Again, there can be good outcomes from progress. So I want to pause. In each one of the cultural lives we've examined, there's been elements that are good within the statements, but overall, as a worldview, they fail. There can be good outcomes from progress, innovation, and advancement. But the question is, are we as human beings actually getting better? Apart from God, are we getting better? better. Romans 1, 21 to 23 gives us some insight into this question. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, worshiping everything else but God. In a sense, we know God, but apart from a new birth of the Spirit of God, we do not, in our own will, honor God. 
The scriptures would go further, Romans 2.14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, Paul says here, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Now this, this verse in context infers that humanity is able to seemingly do good deeds outside of knowing the law of God because the reality Paul would teach in the book of Romans is that it is actually written in our hearts. This is why every people group, if every newly discovered people group, void of the knowledge of God, still has laws and rules similar to the commandments that we find in Scripture. But again, the central aim of humanity, even with those rules in place, is to elevate their knowledge and their power above that of Yahweh, the one true God. Man thinks that his way will bring perfection. I'm going to use this word this morning, utopia, right? A a perfect society that we can live in. We, We see examples of this, actually, if we look back into the last century. There's two distinct examples of this. Uh, in political structures that we saw take place in Europe and much of the world. We see it in the rise of fascism, which took shape under a man named Adolf Hitler. What fascism did is it elevated a, a central government led by one dictator, in this instance it was Hitler, to bring about what his goal was, was to bring about perfection, right, utopia, through one superior race, and he, he aimed to do so out of the destruction of other races and people, and here, here's the catch, that he deemed inferior. He got to set the standards and rules of what utopia looks like. God's not involved in this at all. Similarly, another system would be called Marxism. Marxism gave rise to a supposedly people-centered governance which aimed to bring utopia or perfect society through this, through the destruction of social and economic classes in a society out of the equal distribution of wealth and this, the, the abolition of private property, doing away with privately owned property. But instead, what Marxism did is it gave way to hunger, death, and also atheism, a godless system of governance led by evil men responsible for the death of uh, millions of human lives, men like Lenin and Stalin, Mao, Castro, and Kim Jong-il. Because they are systems of thought and governance that are void of God being at the center. And whenever we do something that's void of God being at the center, we do not progress, we regress, we go backwards. We're not getting better even though we think we might. Quoting Pastor uh, David Fairchild, he says this, fascism and Marxism are two secular meta-narratives which promise this, a new society without the new birth. We're going to get into the new birth a little bit later. Both attempt to eradicate human sin and suffering while causing this, ever more sin and suffering, thus becoming the tormentors they once despised. Why is this always the case? Like, what's the point of this, you might be thinking? Why is this always the case? Because our systems of thought are driven primarily with man at the center and not God. Again, a law unto ourselves. This creating a a law unto ourselves attitude unfortunately has has invaded our churches in the form of so-called progressive Christianity which attempts to reorient, and reorient the, the clear commands and statutes of Scripture around what a pastor or person thinks is best. 
and disregards the commands which calls us, uh, Jesus is very clear about this, to love God by obeying him. This sort of progress has led many churches to throw out this clear scriptural teaching on sexuality, governance, and the value of human life. And ultimately this, the authority and inerrancy of Holy Scripture. At this church, we hold these to be true, the scriptures to guide us. So the question becomes this, what do we need? What do we need? I'm going to add this in this morning as I was thinking about the sermon. What do we really need? What do we really need? We need this. We need a new birth. We need a new birth. We, we cannot have a new society or transformation in our lives. We cannot have justice apart from a new birth. The interesting component of progress or, or new is better is the realization that there is something inherently wrong with the way things are going in the present. That's what these other systems of thought have brought. Things are not right, but aside from this, I want to give you this truth. It's a very exclusive claim I'm making this morning. Aside from being born again, our pursuits of progress are really a regression from a God-honoring way of life because we must first be born of the Spirit, granted a new birth. We must become a new creation. We read a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 earlier. Brian led us in a reading of that passage that talked about how we are new creations in Christ. What happens when we are reborn of the Spirit? We're made new. We set aside the sinful person that we are through the power of God, and we put on the newness of life that Jesus has won for us. Romans 6.4 says this, we were, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, right? Our old way has been put to death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, hear this, we too might walk in newness of life. We've been given new life through Jesus. We need new life. Just recall that there's a famous conversation from John chapter 3 between Jesus and the curious Pharisee Nicodemus where Jesus says this startling statement to Nicodemus, and he doesn't get it. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus makes this claim. This new birth and new creation is this. It's the trajectory of all of Scripture from beginning to end. Even in the, in the early covenant be, between Abraham and God, if we were to go back to Genesis 15, even that covenant points forward to the coming King Jesus who brings about, as Jesus said to Nicodemus later in the New Testament, he brings about the new birth. We pick up a conversation between God and Abraham in Genesis 15, 5 and 6. The Bible says, and he, and he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, God speaking to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And then it says, Abraham, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord. This is important. And God, that is the he there, counted it to him as righteousness. This interaction between God and Abraham points to the coming of Jesus and the inauguration, the beginning of what we would call the new covenant. Again, the question, what do we need, brings us to this. We need a new covenant. 
The old covenant was given so that our sin would be revealed. What is the old covenant? It's the giving of the law to God's people, Israel. Think, I'll put it simply this way, right? All the, thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt, that's the giving of the old covenant. And the old covenant was giving, it was really a form of grace that God gives to us. It was given so that our sin would be revealed, that we would know that we fall short of the mark that God has set, which is perfect. It's perfection. But I want you to notice, here we see the gospel Right here in God's conversation with Abraham. Notice how Abraham was counted righteous in Genesis 15. It wasn't because he perfectly upheld the law. If you were to read the story of Abraham, you'd know he was a liar and he put his wife out a few times, didn't he? He had some issues. And yet in Genesis 15... It says here it wasn't that he, he was saved or, or counted righteous because he perfectly upheld the law, but why? Because it says he believed the Lord. What's another word that we can use for belief? Come on, don't be shy. Trust, good. Faith. Abraham put his faith in God's promises, his word. And the scriptures say that that was counted to him as righteousness. Not because he obeyed the law perfectly. He was righteous because of belief in God's promise by faith. God in his love gave us the law to reveal our deficiencies due to sin and to bring a realization and longing for the fulfillment of the law through something new and better. That's why apart from Christ, there's just something within us that doesn't sit right. There's a hole in our heart that we're seeking to fill because we were created to worship. And we're either going to worship, even the atheist is going to worship things in the creation, but they were designed to worship who? God. It's a realization and a longing for the fulfillment of the law through something new and better. This is accomplished by Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself claims in Matthew 5 that he didn't come to do away with the law. He says this, but rather to fulfill it, to accomplish it, to live it perfectly. And the Old Testament prophets, so that he would usher in a new covenant, a new people. The Old Testament prophets foretell of this new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31, where the prophet says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Hear this, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And this new covenant will be known uh, when, it, when, when this happens according to now another prophet, Ezekiel, he says this. He gives us a little bit more details about this new covenant, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, where the prophet says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Hear this. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And because of the new birth, 
brought about through belief in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can live in the new way that Ezekiel talks about here of the Spirit. According to Paul, we we don't need to be a law unto ourselves. That's our natural inclination. We just want to do our own thing and walk in our own way because God has done this. He has placed his Holy Spirit within us and causes us, as the prophet says, to walk in his statutes and commands. This is good news to me. I don't know about you because I can't do it on my own. I need God to do it for me. Romans 7, 6 says this, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. Thank you, Lord. This is is the way in which new is better. New birth is better. The new covenant is better. New is better when it's rooted in in a new birth, being born again and adopts a new covenant in which we live. Jesus says this, we live and worship. He had a conversation with a lady at the well. We live and worship by the spirit and the truth, he says. And so what do we do? It's our last question. What do we do with this information? Number one, practically now, we discern God honoring progress. We discern those things that are going on around us through the lens of Scripture, by the power of God's Spirit within us, through the counsel of other Christians that have surrounded us to help us to discern what's, what's good and bad. Discern God-honoring progress. Right? There's, there is progress, and we need to discern that which honors God. And we have to realize, too, there's this beautiful thing that, that God does Even to those who are not in him, he extends grace not only to those who are saved, but he extends common grace to all of humanity. It's the reason why somebody who isn't in Christ can wake up and breathe air in the morning and be beautifully creative because God's common grace has been poured out on all of humanity. God can and will work through fallen people to bring about his greatest Good. Psalm 119, 169 says this. Now, this is where we need help. We need discernment. The psalmist says, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me, this is an important word, give me understanding, and look where he gets it from, according to what? Your word. This is the issue with when we hear of a a progressive Christianity, the issue with that is that they discard the word. And they set down scripture and they say, I know better than God. Because the psalmist here says, give me understanding according not to what I think is right or wrong, but according to what? The word of God. We can't throw out the tools that he's given us. We must discern those advancements or or progresses that we have which honor the Lord. Moreover, we have to acknowledge this because our, our society wants to tell us otherwise, but I'm here to tell you the truth this morning. Many of these advancements have actually come from Christians and Christian leaders. A few examples of advancements under Christian leadership. Hospitals. Look at the names of some of them just right down here in our city. The provision of of education. 
and the abolition of slavery in America. I know uh, the news and the TV wants to tell you that, that Christians perpetuated that, and there were some so-called Christians that, that pushed slavery, but by and large, those who worked to abolish slavery, what, were followers of Jesus. That's good and God-honoring progress rooted in Christian faith and leadership. So we need to discern those things. An example that we have of this, actually, I spoke a little bit about Hitler earlier. An example that we have of this is a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've shared often about him in my sermons. He was a pastor in Germany, was actually in the United States for a period of time working with a church and a seminary. And the Lord was just impressing on his heart that he needed to go back to Germany and speak out about what Hitler was doing there. And he was actually involved in a plot to overthrow and kill Hitler. And ultimately, he was imprisoned and he was martyred for his faith and his following of of God's call on his life. But he was a man who discerned progress according to God's word. And he's like, something's not right with what's going on and I'm going to do something about it. Number two, what do we do? Honor mature saints of the faith. Again, in a, in a society that's inundated with the message that new is better or young is better, oftentimes that message can infiltrate the church and we disregard our older faithful members because we want to get younger. But the Lord has called us to minister one to another, to uphold those, those mature saints of the faith. Again, in the church we have a tendency towards an unspoken new is better mindset and the way we treat our older members and leadership, we must honor the mature saints of our faith. And here's something, learn from them. I have a couple in my life that probably on a weekly basis, I'm shooting a text to them, just say, hey, I got a a ministry question for you. Can you help me? I need to learn from you. I don't know what to do, or I need your help to just help me to uh, discern if I'm on the right track or not. And I know that these these folks are, are praying and they're searching the word, and they're, they're giving me wisdom that they've uh, drawn from their experience and through the Spirit of God and through learning from God's word for decades. Psalm 71.9 says this, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. You see, the scriptures uphold men and women of great faith, mature saints. There's a whole chapter. Do you know there's a whole chapter in scripture on this? Hebrews chapter 11 as models of of hope and and convictions and and things unseen. Let us not cast aside the forerunners of our faith and the mature saints of our church, but rather listen to their wisdom and learn from them. On the other hand, now I'm going to talk to our older saints here. Older saints, we need you. We need you to pour into us. We need to hear from you. We need you to stay engaged, okay? I've said this before. You don't get to retire from serving in the church. You don't get to retire from your Christian life and just kind of sit and and warm up a seat for the last 20 years of your life. We need you to disciple us and pour into us. We need your help. We need to learn from you and gather wisdom The author of Hebrews comes to this conclusion after reflecting on the great faith of those from the old way in Hebrews chapter 11. He says this, Hebrews chapter 12. Now, I want you you to get a vision. I'm just going to turn to the passage. 
I had to go short in the earlier service, and I don't have to go short now because we don't have anything going on after this. I want you to picture, if you can, if you could picture a a face. Think about Abel and Enoch. Think about Noah and Abraham. Think about Rahab. Think about Sarah. Think about David. Think about these people surrounding you. Think about those mature saints who invested in you and discipled you. Maybe who have gone to be with the Lord. Think about them surrounding you. And then think about what the author of Hebrews says here in Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Isn't that beautiful? Think about these people around heaven. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us, this is beautiful, run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to ultimately, not Noah, not David, not that saint that invested in you, but looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, that's an interesting way of of putting it, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Think about what Jesus went through on the cross, despising the shame and look at where he's at because he rose from the dead he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God honor the mature saints of the of the faith we have so much to learn from one another we have so much to learn from the example of Christ who in his love willingly sacrificed his own life to save us from sin. Lastly, the last point, number three, let us hold fast to the faith of old. The new way, okay, the next phase, if we could say that, in redemptive history is this. Christ is coming back. Jesus is returning. The new way has come through new birth and a new covenant. We don't need now to progress in reshaping the scriptures because through his, this Peter gives us this insight, through his divine power, we have all we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of God who has called us to his glory and goodness. How do we have that? Again, the scriptures. He's given us newness of life. Hebrews 10.23, I think, gets at this idea that just continue to hold fast. A lot of the New Testament uh, letters are are getting at this. The the Christians are questioning what's going on. Did we miss the coming of Christ? Are we past it? What's going on? And, And the authors keep telling them, hey, just hold on. Just keep persevering. Keep running the race. Keep going. The author of Hebrews says this in 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's not dependent on me. It's not dependent on my advancement. It's dependent on God and his advancement of his kingdom. Amen? And so what is this faith of old that we hold to? It's captured in a beautiful message that we call the good news or the gospel of Jesus. And I want to share this with you this morning. That God, for all of eternity, he knew that this is what would be accomplished. That that he would send his son, Jesus, who came and took on human flesh, 
we affirm that, that Jesus is fully God and fully human. That Jesus came and, and lived in perfection. He fulfilled the law. Every dot of the I and cross of the T. That Jesus fulfilled the will of God and he did that through his perfect life and also his substitutionary death on the cross. Jesus was placed on the cross and he shed his blood for us. The ultimate act of love. Jesus died on the cross and he went into the grave, but the grave could not hold Jesus. On the third day, the earth shook and the stone was rolled away and Jesus came out. He is alive and he has victory over sin and death. Jesus ascended to heaven, as the author of Hebrews says, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. Where right now, he is reigning over all things. We have that confidence in Jesus. That is the faith that we have. In the, we don't need to create something new. We have all we need for life and godliness right here in the power of his word the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Amen? Amen.